Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. I have the incredible job of interviewing geniuses from around the world about the trends shaping the way we live and work. Today, we explore the future of humanity. Our guest is author and futurist David Houle. David believes human beings are at a fork in the road. One path leads to utopia and the other to oblivion. Where we end up will be determined by what we do in this decade. Will we win the battle against climate change? Can we use tools like AI, biotechnology, and quantum computing in an ethical way that benefits humanity? Will companies and governments return a sense of privacy back to people without exploiting our data? These are just a few of the questions that David and I discuss. David Houle is co-founder and managing director of the Sarasota Institute. His most recent book is called The 2020s, in which he argues this will be the most disruptive decade in the history of humankind. This episode of 12 Geniuses is brought to you by the Think to Perform Research Institute, an organization committed to advancing moral, purposeful, and emotionally intelligent leadership. David, welcome to 12 Geniuses. My pleasure. I'm happy to be here. Let's start out by talking about the 2020s. You've called it the most disruptive decade in history. What evidence do you have to reach this conclusion? <laughs> well, I'm a futurist and I look at trends. Starting about four years ago, I realized that there were so many dynamics and trends that were going to intersect in this decade. This decade is going to be really transformative because of the magnitude of change, because of the intersection of so many historical dynamics new forms of technology, the critical stage of climate change. We have until 2030 to make major changes for climate change. We have until 2030 to fully understand how we're going to interact with technological intelligence, often referred to as artificial intelligence. We're going to, we're going to be dealing with the complete final mapping of the brain, neuroscience, uh, to the age of intelligence. That's going to transform computing Democracy and capitalism were formed in the late 1700s, and they need to be reinvented and updated for the 21st century. It's really clear on that. So in almost any endeavor that humanity faces, it's kind of like the 2020s is the fork in the road between the future that we want to have and we want to create, and we can in fact still organize around, or the more disastrous future of just going forward unconscious or ignorant. I wanted to ask you about the shift age. I think that's a term that you coined, correct? Yes. And you wrote a book called Entering the Shift Age. What do you mean by the shift age? What is it? 2005, I had a transformative moment that made me realize I wanted to be a futurist. So I looked back from the vantage point of 2005 to, say, 1975, so the 30 years since the information age got its name. And I realized, Don, that there were five things that had happened and one that was going to happen that just said to me loudly and clearly that we'd enter a new age. First of all, the end of the Cold War, the beginning of the global economy, analog to digital, personal computing, and the Internet. Those five things, and I knew it in 2005 that there would ultimately be high-speed high speed wireless. And so those six things told me that any three of them would trigger a new age. And then I started to think, well, what is this age going to be? 
in the prior ages were defined by product, agricultural production or technology, and that that the shift age was going to be um, basically the time, roughly 2025 to 2030, give or take, that everything would undergo shift. So from the vantage point of here in 2021, if you just look back at the last 15 years, how we communicate is different, how we buy things is different, how we look at healthcare is different, how we look at education is different, how we how we do almost any aspect of our lives is different. So everything is in a rapid state of shift and the speed of change has accelerated from an, from an accelerating through line of history to an environment of change. We live in an environment of change. All aspects of our lives are shifting simultaneously. So the, hence the name, the shift age. And getting back to the fork in the road, I think that's a phrase that maybe Buckminster Fuller used back in the 60s. Could you describe what the fork in the road is? Fuller said utopia or oblivion, a fork in the road. And he wrote that in 1970. He said in several decades, humanity will get to a fork in the road. He said utopia or oblivion. I translate that to mean into uh, a future of abundance, creating the life that we, when I use the word we, I mean talking about humanity, the life that we want versus the life we're going to get if we don't take any action and let things go on unabated. So this is really the decade. I've written a couple of books on climate change, and all that research shows me that if by 2030 we haven't made fundamental changes in uh, energy, transportation, farming, there might not be civilization by the end of this century. So that is really, you know, we've entered the global stage of human evolution. And so what the 2020s is also going to be about is it's going to be about how uh, we move from the, the fork in the road is from the us and them, the way we think, clearly shown up in American politics today, but the us and them versus them from nationalism. If we're in the global stage of human evolution, the fork in the road is to move towards that reality that all the major issues today are global in scope, they're not national in scope, and that our collective future is based on all of us. And McLuhan wrote in 1970, around the first Earth Day, there are no passengers in Spaceship Earth, we're all crew. So you can say that this is the decade where we have to show up to crew the planet, where we have to show up to crew our collective future, and we have to move to a global perception to be able to do that. You mentioned this spaceship Earth, and that was a book that you wrote, I think, in 2016. Is that right? 2015? 2015. End of 2015. Right. There's a section in it at the very beginning called the Quartermaster's Report. And it's quite frightening. And so maybe you could just give us the 2021 version of the Quartermaster's Report. The Quartermaster is the person on the ship who is responsible for reporting to the captain the status of all aspects of what's on board, you know, food, resources, people, stuff like that. So the 2021 quartermaster report is reporting on the status of the ship, in this case, the planet. And what we know is that all of the indications that measure dynamic 
change in terms of the warming of the planet and the consequent climate crisis are accelerating. The speed at which the sea level is rising is accelerating. The speed of species extinction is accelerating. There's currently about 150 species that become extinct every day. That includes plants and insects, which is, depending on who you listen to, 1,000 to 10,000 times the average norm over the last few millennia. Uh, the sea level rise is happening at a faster rate this century than in recorded history. The heating of the planet was supposed to be kept to 1.5 Celsius and we're already at 1.1 globally. And in some cases, the Arctic and the Antarctic, we're at a multiple of that, three and four degrees, which means that you're seeing the ice melt in the Arctic almost completely now. And 10 years ago, it was thought that the Antarctic ice shelf and all the glaciers on it would last for literally 900 to 1,000 years. Five years ago, uh, what is happening hadn't been expected to happen for 100 or 200 years. So it's now expected that the Antarctic uh, ice will might last for 100 years. So what we have is degradation across the board. Uh, natural resources, including water, species. So everything is accelerating at an alarming rate. And yet humanity is reacting to it in an incremental rate. That's a grim report. And I'm just wondering, is it possible for us to innovate our way out of this? What we have to do is save ourselves from ourselves. That makes it manageable. If we've created the problem, we can create the solution. The solution is going to be radical, dynamic, and urgent. I wrote a book, as you know, in 2019, Moving to a Finite Earth Economy Crew Manual, where all the research showed that we need to move from 77% fossil fuel generated energy globally in 2020 to 30% by 2030. And the interesting thing, Don, is the research showed that 80% of all energy is consumed by the top 20 GDPs in the world out of 195 countries. So what that means is if just the top 20 GDPs move from 77% to, say, 19% of energy from fossil fuels by the end of this decade, the 175 other countries don't have to do a thing. So it's a matter of, of being smart and going where the change is most. And I do think we're going to have to have some technological or huge events, whether it's shielding part of the earth or uh, putting clouds into the atmosphere to reflect sun. We're going to have to do something. That's a high danger. But, but right now, the cost of not doing anything is much worse and whatever trillions of dollars will cost to rectify the situation. Waiting is not an option because everything is accelerating, as I mentioned. So the only thing we can do is to act with a sense of urgency. We have to do in the next 10 years the necessary steps so that there will be survival of the species 
into the next century, and there will be the maintenance of civilization as we know it in this century. From what you know, is moving from 77% to 30% in nine years even possible? Yes. The problem is, here's the example, okay? COVID is the best example, right? You know, something happened a little less than a year ago that has never happened in history, Don, and that was March, April. Billions of people went on a self-lockdown. For the first time in history, I would say two to four billion people did the same thing. That statement is true. Before COVID, there hasn't been three to four billion people that ever did the same thing for 30 to 60 days. And what happened? All of a sudden, the air became clear. You could see Mount Everest from New Delhi for the first time since the 70s. The canals of Venice became clear. The animals came out and roamed where only humans used to. The migratory paths were reinstituted. So what we showed is that if we stayed inside for 45 to 60 days, the world got better. We can do this. We just have to decide to do it, and we have to decide to do it collectively. One of the remarkable things about the book, the most recent book that I read of yours, the 2020s, was your view on the future of capitalism, the future of democracy, the future of nation states. You're you're saying that, or you're arguing that these are becoming obsolete. Could you talk about why that is and what the replacements are? All of our major issues confronting humanity are planetary in scope. Climate change, wealth inequality, migration, natural resources, degradation of the same, technology. And so we have to move to a global we consciousness versus us and them. That is one thing. The second part is the more specific how to reinvent capitalism and reinvent democracy. In the book I mentioned, Moving to a Finite Earth Economy, Crew Manual, I said that capitalism has created more wealth and more material well-being than any other movement, power, process, category in history. And it is so powerful. I'm not against capitalism. I'm just saying let's reinvent capitalism to successfully face climate change. Where are we in terms of how effectively we're cutting emissions? We're not. How would, how would you evaluate that in terms of like a scale of one to 10 with one being abysmal and 10 being ideal? Somewhere between one and two. Oh, okay. Well, here, here's, the, here's the thing, Don. You know, this, you know, it's really good that Biden wanted to go back into the 2015 Paris Climate Accord, right? The problem with the 2015 Paris Climate Accord is you had to dumb down to the lowest number of level to get most of the people. So you had to go down to an inadequate level of commitment to get consensus. The goal was to get consensus at all costs. So you got consensus, but at a low level. That's one. Number two, it was done in December 2015, and they said this won't take effect till 2020. So they discounted urgency. The third thing that they failed on 
was every country had to set their parameters, their self-imposed parameters for pollution for 2016, 17, 18, 19 to 2020. And not one of them has met their self-prescribed number. They've all been over it. So to me, the Paris 2015 Climate Accord is a total failure. It's good that America is coming back in because one of the problems of climate change is America in post-World War II was fighting the evil empire of the Soviet Union. So it was incumbent on America to persuade the rest of the world that the consumer capitalistic culture was good, the American way of life. Well, the American way of life, if everybody in the planet had the American way of life, we'd have five Earth's worth of resources being consumed. So the problem is we persuaded the world to live the way we have lived. And yet now that we can see the consequences of that, it's morally unfortunate for us to turn to an India or Thailand and say, no, no, you can't do what we did, right? So the good news about going into the climate accord is America has to take leadership. America and Australia are both at 16 tons per person. Canada is at about 14 tons. You know, India is at about two tons of CO2 in the atmosphere per person. So it's important that America make the most amount of changes as China should, as the EU should. Those that have the most amount, as I said, the top 20 GDPs have to make the change. And right now we've failed across the board. One of the things that I have found really interesting about your work is your talk on place versus space or the physical versus the virtual. Could you talk about what that is and why it's important to the future of humanity? When I first started talking about the shift age, I said that there were two realities, the physical reality and the screen reality, and that the screen reality is where the future shows up. And that, for example, in 2010, I said that there'd be a collapse of physical retail in the United States. Why? Because I saw Amazon.com on the screen reality. And it was Amazon.com that did it, not the infighting of all the competing brands in the physical reality. So the point is, is that COVID has accelerated into months, years worth of change. And, And so the place versus space comes up because we're in a connected space. Uh, I live in Florida, so I see grandparents all the time talking to their grandchildren somewhere else in the world. Hi, Susie. And what the grandparents are doing, hey, I'm grandma's here. Grandma's in my phone. They don't have any concept that there's a distance because they can talk to grandma every day on their phone. So grandma's here. So you can see that generationally where the baby boom and the Gen Xers were the last people that grew up in the sense of place and the millennials and the digital natives and now this new Gen Alpha are all digitally connected. So, so the place versus space means it, it's transformative in terms of consciousness. It shows up in terms of generations. In other words, the youngest generation is most spatially connected. Um, you and I, and you're younger than I am by a lot. But you and I went to high school, and the only concern about our popularity was this in our physical space. Now you have people coming into high school that have to manage their spatial relationships on social media, 
in their physical relationships, in the physical reality. So this is bifurcation. I also wanted to get into some topics that I have been thinking about that I do think really impact the future of humanity. And that first one is around privacy, data, and manipulation with the just the massive amounts of data that human beings are are creating right now and the ability for tech companies, for governments to use that data to manipulate. I'd love to hear your perspective on what that can and likely will do to the future of humanity. I always think that there's a good generational filter. So if you look at the generational filter, if you're a baby boomer, or you're a from the silent generation, the two oldest generations alive today, you have grown up with a sense of privacy. If you're a Gen Xer, you've grown up with a little bit less of a certainty of privacy. If you're under the age of 40, you, you assume that there is no privacy, right? I mean, the way the millennials and the digital natives share completely online, they don't care, right? So Privacy is really an issue for for people who came to adulthood in the last century. So privacy is gone. Then you get into the moral questions of surveillance. There's a double-edged sword with the government. We want the government, the federal government, to protect us from foreign actors, you know, from the Russians, from the Iranians, from the Chinese, and from criminals. And to some degree, we have to give up something to get that. On the other hand, we don't want our government to spy on us. Uh, So going, I wrote this in 2013 relative to the future of privacy on the assumption that there is no privacy relative to outward actions. So, quote, privacy is what we cherish and hold inside us. It is our thoughts, feelings, and sense of individual self. We can have this privacy, whether in solitude or in the company of others. Privacy is an inner state of being and awareness that provides both comfort and identity. So that's going to be privacy going forward. I can sit in a room full of people and have my my private sense of individual self private. I can't make it private that I'm sitting in that room. So what you're doing is you're dealing away with all the externalities that used to be private. It seems like for all of humanity's success over the last 200 years, happiness generally hasn't gone up, or if it's gone up, it's gone up only a little bit, whereas life expectancy's gone up, mortality has, uh, child mortality has gone down, workplace safety has improved, all of these Things have improved, but generally happiness hasn't. Is there a place in the future for measuring happiness? And we talked about Bhutan a little bit, where they have this happiness index that I think is tracked. What is our goal as humans? What should our goal be for humanity? So happiness is a great barometer of why one is alive. The Dalai Lama, what's your spiritual advice? He says, Be happy and treat everyone you meet as a friend. Okay, that's pretty simple. I'm just going to give you some statements to answer. In a finite world, infinite growth is insanity. 
We live in a finite earth, and yet we have an infinite growth. GDP measures only one thing, growth of economic output. You mentioned 200 years. 200 years equals the Industrial Revolution. So when the Industrial Revolution was created, it increased more wealth than anything else. There's more wealth created in the last 200 years than in all of humanity before. So the creation of wealth, of material wealth, if you source 200 years as you did, means that material wealth is directly correlated to non-happiness. So inherently, happiness is about human well-being. And the, and the beauty of COVID is that COVID made us not be, instead of Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, the weekend, it was today, 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 right? So the externalities of life were no longer structuring our lives. So people, you know, the sourdough bread, baking, eating differently, working out, reading more books, uh, having a desire for some meaning in life because we weren't, we weren't relying on the externalities to give us that meaning. So there's an increase in meaning, there's an increase in spirituality, there's an increased desire for happiness, and there's an increasing realization, particularly on the part of the younger generations, that material wealth is not the end-all and be-all. It's, it, it's valid to say that the baby boomers, and to some degree the Gen Xers, were the last generations that really believed that material wealth provided happiness. So do you think that we can make a transition from measuring GDP to measuring something a little bit more meaningful than GDP, like happiness? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I've written some books on, on climate and climate's going to force us to do this, right? You know, as Gandhi said, we do not have the resources for everybody's greed, but we have the resources for everybody's need. So once we move towards a humanity first, if you will, I oversimplify things by saying the 20th century was the left brain century. The 21st century is the right brain century. The 20th century was the century of science. The 21st century is going to be the century of humanity. So everything can be reoriented that way. You know, America keeps falling lower and lower and lower in terms of happiness. The countries that are most happy, the top 10, are almost all either Scandinavian social democracies where the safety net is strong or countries like Bhutan or Costa Rica that have a non-materially oriented lifestyle. What should our population be? Because I read something, I think, by Christopher Tucker that you know we have a three billion person planet. Is that is that what our goal population should be? His book is a must read for anybody, A Planet of Three Billion. It changed my way of thinking. The day I was born, there was 2.5 billion. So in my lifetime, it's more than tripled. There is no way the planet can sustain that. The unfortunate reality about climate, the climate crisis, is that we have not aggressively, openly dealt with population control. And we have to. What happened in the 20th century in the United States of America, 6% population growth translated into 6% annual GDP growth. So more population with more GDP. Right now, 
when everything is collapsing on the only planet we have, we have to change that. The good news is that at the same time that those populations went down, one of the reasons they went down is that from 2015, when there's 51% of the people alive in the world who live in an urban environment, by 2045, that's going to be 70%. But 51% of 7.5 billion versus 70% of 9 billion means that there's 75 million people a year, 2015 to 2045, either being born into or moving to urban environments. So it's an inevitable trend line for the future of humanity. Correlating with that is that women have a lower birth rate if they move to cities. So in other words, the average replacement rate of a population is 2.1 per childbearing woman, right? In cities, that's fallen to 1.5 to 1.4. So the education of and the empowerment of women will lower the birth rate. So like you mentioned Chris Tucker, I've signed on to support him to try to get the the birth rate, which is about two now globally, down to 1.5 by 2030. Because if it gets down to 1.5 by 2030, then that still viable nine and a half billion by 2100 goes down to seven or six if we flatline at 1.5. So the argument is, what do we want to do? Do we want to keep overpopulating the planet? We, and therefore have starvation, fighting for water, fighting for food, 100 million climate change refugees every decade. Do we want that, death and destruction? Or do we want to plan for it and have nobody die because of some violent death because we've planned for it? All the research shows as the population increase, carbon pollution increases, degradation of the planet increases. It's just logical math, right? So. I am completely of the view that uh, we need to consciously, collectively, aggressively face having a lower birth rate. Like you said earlier, everything needs to be redesigned. <laughs> everything needs to be. Along with two other futurists that I respect, I'm one of three initiators of a futurist-oriented project called the Fork, Hashtag Fork in the Road Project. Our Buckminster Fuller said in his book written 50 years ago, Utopia or Oblivion, humanity will approach a fork in the road several decades, we are here, there, now, down, where we have to choose between utopia or oblivion. His words. Our words are, we have until 2030. There is a moment in time, it's called the 2020s, where there's a confluence of dynamics and trends and overarching issues that must be faced in the next 10 years if we want to be able to create our future rather than mindlessly and ignorantly portaling down the path of oblivion, right? So climate change, artificial intelligence, genetic engineering, privacy, reworking cities, transportation, energy, all has to be done. The big issues facing humanity have to be addressed this is the decade. This is the fork in the road. If we successfully get urgent enough and collective consciousness enough that we have just this time, 
we can create the future. This is the decade that will set the trajectory for humanity, perhaps for the century, certainly at least to 2050. So based on what you know, and based on what you just laid out for us, what is the future of humanity? Are we on the path of oblivion or is it, or can we get to utopia? What, what's your prediction? Yes and yes. That's why we're creating the Fork in the Road project. In other words, right now, we are cataclysmically rushing towards no civilization as we know it by the end of the century, given the situation with climate. No question. We are at high risk relative to what will happen with artificial intelligence if we don't kind of take a look at where we're going. We are at the conflict or the intersection of technological medical science capability and morality. We have the capability to clone humans today. By the end of this decade, medical science will be able to do practically anything. So this is the decade where these huge things, and this is why we're future, saying we have seen the future, we studied the future, and we're bringing the future to the present, saying now is the time to face our future collectively at the most urgent and collective way we can. It sounds really simple, what I'm about to say. We're in the global global stage of human evolution. We move from family to tribe to village to city to city state and only many nation state, and only many bounds planets. So the highest evolved organization we have is the nation state. And that is us and them. Religions are us and them. In order to face and create the humanity that could last sustainably for centuries and have it be abundant and utopian is um, right now we have to do as best as we can to anticipate what would happen if we continue along this path and provide options for the path that we're not yet taking, the fork in the road that is here. Very simply, we have to move from us in them to we. Will humanity someday be one being? And what I mean by that, and this might make sense to you, what I mean by that is that the human being, each individual human being is a cell, and we collectively work together. And as the cells die, new cells replace it, and we advance, but advance in a collective manner. So instead of us seeing each other as individual people, we see ourselves as one being. Does that make sense? Like a single organism? Don, not only does it make sense, it is the core of my vision of the future. So I believe that by the end of the decade, there'll be some people who are doing brainwave computer interface, who have, who have gone into other types of high-level focusing of the mind, who've connected to like the next 10 generations of what Musk has in his neural link, which is brainwave computer and brainwave material interface, is going to ask, we're going to have a leap from ever more connected to technology to an actual integration. Our next evolutionary step is the merger of humanity and technological intelligence. The only fiction book I read when I went back and reread all the futurists to become a futurist was Childhood's End by Arthur C. Clarke. 
And it's basically about a several generations story of how man moves from individual physical creatures to a collective consciousness that even became conscious. Now that is a bit far and it goes beyond physics as we know it, but I absolutely believe in that. And so how do you do that? How can you get there? Do we want that? These are the conversations. These are the questions that have to be answered by as many of us as we can in this decade. What can people do now to prepare themselves? You talked about a great redesign or redesign of everything that we know. Democracy, capitalism, you know, all of these different things need to be redesigned. What can the individual do to prepare themselves so they can be ready for it? At the highest level, the only constant, the only truth in the universe, in the galaxy, in the cosmos is change. Change is constant. If there was not change, there wouldn't be time. If you believe that in time, you, time is nothing but a axis on which change is measured. So therefore, you have to stand in the beingness of change. If you are resistant to change, if you don't like change, you have nothing to hold on to because reality is just an agreed upon collective perception. The good news about that is the agreed upon collective perception could be flipped to what we were just talking about, that collectivism is better, right? That's one. I always go back to rock and roll. You know, those not busy being born are busy dying. Are you, listener to this podcast, actively busy being born? Are you waiting? Are you holding on? If you're waiting or you're holding on, you're going to become a victim. You're going to have a life of nothing but reaction. If you are busy being born, if you're embracing change, you will have the opportunity to evolve and to join and to move forward and to take advantage. The 2020s, there'll be more change in this decade in any 30-year period. The flip side of that is, therefore, there is more opportunity and more room for growth and transcendence and self-realization than in any other decade in human history. It's up to you and it's up to us. David, where can people learn more about you? Well, I'm pretty much everywhere. If you type in David, H-O-U-L-E, and there's a bunch of David Hulls, so then add on futurists, you'll get pages on Google. So that's the way to start. You can go to davidhool.com. From there, you can see the other things I'm working on. All my books are available on Amazon. And I would suggest that even though I'm really proud of all the books I've written, the books that I'm now writing, the ones that you've read down to the 2020s, is probably the most important stuff I've written, because it's immediately applicable, right? Here's how to navigate the next 10 years. Here's what's going to come. Be prepared. So davidhool.com is the single starting point, but just type my name into Google and take it from there. Awesome. We'll put it in the show page notes as well. David, fantastic conversation. I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. And thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses, and thank you to our sponsor, the Think to Perform Research Institute. 
The next episode will explore the future of social media. Our guest is Ross Dawson, a futurist, joining us all the way from Australia. That episode will be released April 6th, 2021. Thank you to our producer, Devin McGrath, and our research and historical consultant, Brian Beerbaum. If you love this podcast, please let us know by subscribing and leaving us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. To subscribe, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius.